May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Do you remember Substitute Teacher Day in the fifth grade? Yeah, you do, don't you? We have some teachers here. At least one sub over there, Jan, yeah? I think substitute teachers are the unsung heroes of our day. Women and men who bravely go where angels fear to tread. Um, They walk into rooms without the the benefit of Kevlar or PPE or any other such a safety device, confidently striding into a class of fifth graders. True American heroes, they plan to teach children how to divide fractions, speak about the importance of the Magna Carta, how to parse verbs, and on and on. They try to do this over top of giggling voices, obscene bodily sounds, um, the obvious signs of minds huddled elsewhere. They try to wrest attention away from whatever is going on outside the window or in the hallway or wherever else it might be. Heaven forbid something truly unusual should happen on Substitute Teacher Day. I mean, if a bird flies into the classroom... When Mrs. Henderson, the regular teacher, is present, it might be a little kerfuffle for a moment or two, but she'll calm the students and bring them back. But on Substitute Teacher Day, when Mrs. Tittle is there, these children are like, they're like, um, like the inmates in the prison yard when they see the guard trip. You know, I mean, they are on them as fast as can be. And the next thing you know, you're going from whatever's half of two-thirds to where, you know, the Lord of the Flies has, has begun to take over. And poor Mrs. Tittle, this isn't at all what she signed up for, is it? Not at all what she was thinking about. I heard somebody talking not long ago about how to combat school shootings. And one of the, the suggestions that was offered wasn't to get rid of guns, but rather to arm school teachers. Now, I'm no expert on the Second Amendment, nor am I any kind of expert on social engineering or any of that sort of thing. But I think I am only standing here today because my substitute teachers did not have access to weapons. (laughs) It it might be a frightening thing if we gave them guns and put them in charge. Uh, Substitute teacher day. Now, I can't speak for fifth grade girls, not at all. I think that most of them were worried about Mrs. Henderson. You know, is she ill? Has something horrible happened to her? Does she have COVID? Not the boys. The boys weren't like that at all. They were, they were Lord of the Flies. This is takeover day. And, um, and they were planning and strategizing from the moment they knew that Mrs. Henderson was not coming in. The problem with being a substitute, and Jan will have to tell you more about this, is you think you're in charge. Um, but there are, you know... 13 uh, fifth grade boys who also think they want to vie for that, that role and that authority. And that's what happens when authorities in, in question, isn't it? We have chaos, you know. Um, when when a, a mutiny can become such a serious problem because, you know, the, the well-being of the whole is, is threatened by one who would be an uprising. Um, and, and authority it has to be more than just might. Right? The person who holds authority has to have moral value as well. I mean, we've seen what happens when we have you know, people in powers of, positions rather of authority and power who lack moral restraint. You get people like Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, 
You know, Bashir al-Assad. This is what happens when you have power without morality. Who's in charge? Are they worthy of this leadership? And I'm not talking about politics. Not at all. In the Gospel lesson today, Jesus gives us a parable that's about as close to an allegory as you'll ever get from him. Uh, most of the, the parables have sort of a central one meaning. And you get caught up sometimes in the details, and if you try to allegorize them, it becomes very problematic. But in Matthew 21, Jesus gives us this, this, um, this parable that's very close to an allegory. But first, the backstory. Jesus has made his way from um, Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. He's not a native of Jerusalem. He's, he's there like all the other people who are gathering in the city because of the Passover festival is drawing near. The city is teeming with pilgrims. People from all over are in there. They have just, you know, the city has swelled in its numbers. There are, there are pilgrims everywhere, worshippers everywhere, priests everywhere are, are forced into service. It is just a hive of activity. And in the temple courts, there are people who are selling, um, they're selling animals for sacrificial offerings. It's pigeons and lambs and the like. There are also people who are there who are exchanging currency. They're taking the, the, the regular Roman money and transferring it into a temple currency in order to buy these animals for sacrifice. And so there's all this, you know, things, all this, uh, you know, merchandising and, and marketing going on in, in the temple courts and other people who are going up to, to worship and to pray. It's just, a, it's just a hive of activity. And into the midst of this, Jesus creates this major scene. He goes in. You're, you're, you're well familiar with this story. I, I, even people who never go to church hear this story because the angry Jesus story is a, is a fantastic one for the culture, right? And so he, he goes in and overturns tables and drives out the people, shouting at them scripture verses, uh, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Right? Uh, this sort of um, major kind of chaotic scene. And the people who are in charge are furious. I mean, Jesus is not a priest. He's a lay person. He's not even a junior priest, if such a thing exists. He's just, he's some, some bloke from, from Galilee. He's not, he has a, you know, a funny accent. He doesn't belong here. He has no authority. He has no right to do these things. And that's what they say to him. You have no right to do anything. Who put you in charge of anything? This is the question that the chief priests lay upon Jesus. You've created chaos. You've turned um, this perfectly uh, you know, functioning system upside down. Who gave you the right to do these things? Jesus poses the question back to them, doesn't he? It's about John the Baptist. Is John the Baptist a, a true prophet or is he... Um, you know, not a true prophet, and, and they don't want to answer. Jesus is answered, well, I'm not going to tell you who gave me the authority to do these things. Then he gives three parables. This is the second of the third. And the stories are all about failed leadership and judgment that is coming upon failed leadership. Let's kind of go back over this story just a little bit. He says, this second story, he says, there's, there's this wealthy farmer who builds this vineyard. He... Um, he, he, he plants all the vines, he digs a, a fence around it, puts a wine press in it, he puts a tower up there to protect it from enemies and thieves, and then he, he wants to go on a journey. You know, he's, he's going to travel, so he hires some people to work in his vineyard. I mean, you guys will be sharecroppers, you come in here, you work it, and, and you'll get paid. 
Um, the problem is, is he doesn't go through a real good screening process. And the people that this wealthy uh, farmer hires are a bunch of miscreants and ne'er-do-wells. And, and so they come in and they begin to work and he goes off on his journey. And they decide, hey, we're just going to keep everything for ourselves. So come harvest time, the owner sends some of his servants back to collect the rent. And the sharecroppers who have been hired, the, the hirelings inside of the, the vineyard, what do they do? They beat them, throw stones at them. One of them they kill. No money comes back. Eventually the owner says, well, that's ridiculous, I'm going to send a, I'll send a larger contingency, I'll send a, a, a bigger unit, you know. So he sends more, go back, go collect my rent. Same thing happens to them. Lastly, he says, I'm going to send my son because surely they will be ashamed of themselves when they see the son. I think, um, I think Jesus told this in Hebrew. I think instead of that they will be ashamed, they will give him his weight. Kavod in Hebrew. They will honor him the way he should be honored. They'll give him the sort of proper you know, dignity and authority that is his. Boy, was he wrong. They see the son coming and they think to themselves, the owner's dead. This is the heir. We'll just kill him and keep everything for ourselves. We'll just claim squatter's rights. It'll be ours. There's actually a first century law that permitted squatter's rights if there was no claim to a property. So they see them, they kill him, and they unceremoniously throw his body out to be eaten by dogs or whatever. Jesus tells this story to people who are running the temple, the priests. There are also some, some Pharisees, some you know, strict religious uh, uh, traditionalists that are there. He tells them this story and he says, well, lastly, the owner is going to come back. What will he do with these, with these tenants of his? And the priests rightly outraged say, you know, Give those wretched wretches what they deserve. Give them a, you know, a quick death and hire and replace them with new ones. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely correct. And in the gospel lesson, Matthew says, all of a sudden they realize that he's talking about them. Jesus is talking about the religious authorities who control the temple. He's going to deal with these unscrupulous tenants. Only they are the unscrupulous tenants. These people who are in control of the temple, they control the worship liturgy. They control the ethics of the community. They control so much about the way that the people live and conduct themselves. And Jesus says they are the unfaithful tenants. They are thieving farmers. They have bought no produce. God is coming demanding payment and they, are, they have nothing to show for it. All they've done is killed every single person he has sent to require their payment. So what does this say to you and me? I mean, what does this text mean to us? I mean, we can stick it in a first century setting and, and exegete it and say, well, that's is great. Well, the first thing is, I think this, that we ought to recognize that we are the recipients of the kingdom. It was taken away from others and given to us. Yippee, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yay! It's, it, it was given to us. Where are the new tenants? You know where this is going, don't you? You're two steps ahead of me. Of course you are. 
We are the new tenants. And we are just as accountable for our actions as the first tenants were accountable for theirs. We are as responsible for how we handle the kingdom as they were before us. Do we really think that if those before us were kicked out for their failure to live and to do right, that we will receive some other sort of treatment that will just skate by? Don't miss the forest for the trees here. Jesus tells the religious authorities that God is going to judge them. He's going to judge them because they have failed to take care of the worship of God. They've turned it into a business. That people had spiritual longings, desires to come close to God. And what they saw was an opportunity to make money. They were in charge of shepherding hungry people who needed God. And they turned it into a business. They turned it into an opportunity to make themselves gods instead of leading them to the true God. And now we're in charge. Now we're in charge. So a few kind of self-reflective questions about how we're handling this vineyard that's been entrusted to us. Are we providing a place where people can find hope and welcome and peace? No matter where they are, who they are, where they come from, no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, are we, are we people who are bringing hope and grace to the needy of this world? And I'm not just talking about the people who are financially poor. You can be, you can be wealthy beyond measure and be really, really poor. Oh, you remember the statement of Mother Teresa where she said, you know, there is a poverty in America that is unlike any poverty I've seen elsewhere. It is a poverty of the soul. A poverty of love. Are we a place where people can find hope and meaning and peace? More than that, are we people who would dare to venture out into the world to find people who are the least, the last, and the lonely? Will we get out of our little cloistered lives and and rub elbows with people who don't look like us or sound like us or think like us or perish the thought, vote like us? Will we dare to be friends to people who are not like us in order that they might find a place where they can have hope in God? The second thing I think this parable reminds us is the value of true holiness. We can develop a sort of holiness that gets us rewarded in the church and in the community of believers. But it's not a true righteousness. It's it's a superficial righteousness. It it looks good on paper. It's like a resume, you know? You can look really good on paper. Do you know how good the Cleveland Browns look on paper? You know, um, you can look really good on paper. True holiness. I, I, I knew this. Um, I got to meet this, this uh, Methodist scholar. His name was Dennis Kinlaw. Passed away a few years ago. As brilliant a person as you ever want to meet. A delightful um, PhD from Brandeis. You know, he's just really, really bright. But such a, a warm spirit and very approachable. And he was doing a, a, a talk back after a, a, a lecture that he had given. And I asked him about holiness and I said, you know, uh, kind of the problem with holiness is, you know, I seem to leak. <laughs> you know, I, seem to, I seem to be good for a day or two, but, you know, the next day, not so good, you know. And, uh, and, and, and how, do you, how do you recapture this? And he's from North Carolina, had this great, you know, kind of southern accent. And 
very mountainous, you know. And he says to me, the only holiness that we can ever have is a derived holiness. We are never holy in and of ourselves. We are only holy insofar as we remain connected to the Holy One. So as long as we're connected to the Holy One, we we have this holiness that kind of comes through us. This connection to Christ makes us holy moment by moment. We aren't just in charge of managing the vineyard. We're in charge of staying connected to the owner of the vineyard day by day, moment by moment. We are called to be holy, not in our own holiness, and not list, oh wow, look at the things I do and don't do, but in our connection to the Almighty, that we reflect the life of Christ in this world. One more. I think this parable reminds us of the need to submit to godly authority. It is a part of, of every clergy person's vows, you know, that we have to submit um, to authority. This poverty, chastity, obedience is, is still part of our, our vows of ministry. But I think it's a part of all of our vows as followers of Christ. The submission to godly authority that we shouldn't treat the church and the world like it's substitute teacher day. That the sin of autonomy is a real sin. It is the very first sin. The sin of autonomy. We will be gods unto ourselves. We will seize control. This is Adam and Eve. This is the, the tenants in the vineyard. We have to constantly reflect on our own actions and practices. And say to ourselves, have we turned a place of prayer into a marketplace? Have we ceased to remember that we are a community of faith that ought to be you know, eager to bring hope to the world through our generosity, through our, our hospitality, through our, our kindness, Because here's what I want us to remember. We are the new tenants. We are the new tenants. The old tenants have been judged. The new tenants have been been given authority. But if we forget the lessons of history, we are doomed to repeat them. And what's happened to others could happen to us. But if we learn these lessons, right? If we learn the lessons of Jesus and continually learn them and live them, we have a chance to make a huge difference in the world. An enormous difference in the world. We can help people who are hungry, hungry for God. People who are hungry for meaning. People who are hungry for identity and place and purpose and family. The church can be family to people who have no family. People who are hungry for hope. One of my uh, dear friends used to say to me that, um, that a Christian witness is just this. It's one beggar telling another beggar where they found food. If you found bread, a bread of life that's changed and made a difference in your life, share with other beggars where to find that too. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.